business class listeners, you're tuned into episode number 199 of Wisco Weekly, 199 episodes of Wisco Weekly. And this is the most important episode I will have done to date. For all of you who are in the investor community, for those of you looking to have an outlook of 2022, the most recent Federal Open Market Committee conference, which occurred on Wednesday, December 15th. This episode will cover that FOMC meeting. Now, in supplement to that meeting, if you are looking to make some gains or have a better understanding of your income and your paycheck, the episode, the mini-series I conducted with Automotive Mastermind is a must-listen for you. It will go hand-in-hand hand with my analysis of the 2022 outlook based on Jerome Powell's latest statements. You could listen to the mini-series Predicting the Next Paycheck on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just Google the name or visit the episode page. Have a listen to that three-part mini-series on predicting the next paycheck so you have an idea of how you can hedge in 2022. This is a episode that I will just be playing clips of the FOMC meeting, so I hope you enjoy. I hope you take something out of it. It's, a, it's fairly heavy, but I tried to simplify it as much as possible, so I hope you enjoy. Stay tuned for episode 200 to conclude this 2021 year. Stay safe. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Check in with me next time. For those of you that are new, welcome to Wisco Weekly. Be sure you consider subscribing. And if you do like this episode, consider providing a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitae, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Have you had the chance to re-listen or re-watch or watch and listen for the first time this last quarter four FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee meeting? If not, that's what we're going to do on today's episode. I'm going to do for you four things. First thing is I want to read off a transcription of Jerome Powell's speech that he gave on Wednesday, December 15th, which is the last FOMC meeting of the year. I'm going to read his transcription. I want to then share with you a couple clips of the Q&A from the media. And after that, I want to then tell you some of the things that the Fed hikes do not tell you about 2022. Okay, what these Fed hikes, these rate hikes that will come next year, what do those not mean? And then the last thing is what you should do. So first thing, 
let's get into Powell's speech. And I'm just going to read verbatim. This is a transcription. So he says, good afternoon. At the Federal Reserve, we are strongly committed to achieving the monetary policy goals that Congress has given us, maximum employment and price stability. Today, in support of these goals, the Federal Open Market Committee kept interest rates near zero and updated its assessment of the progress that the economy has made toward the criteria specified in the committee's forward guidance from the from interest rates. So the interest rates is the federal funds rate is 0.15%, which is the quote unquote near zero, or that's what that means there. I read on. In addition, in light of the strengthening labor market and elevated inflation pressures, we decided to speed up the reductions in our asset purchases. As I will explain, economic developments and changes in the outlook warrant this evolution of monetary policy, which will continue to provide appropriate support for the economy. Economic activity is on track to expand at a robust pace this year, reflecting progress on vaccinations and the reopening of the economy. Aggregate demand remains very strong, buoyed by fiscal and monetary policy support and the healthy financial positions of households and businesses. The rise in COVID cases in recent weeks, along with the emergence of the Omicron variant, pose risks to the outlook. Notwithstanding the effects of the virus and supply constraints, FOMC participants continue to foresee rapid growth. As shown in our summary of economic projections, the median projection for real GDP growth stands at 5.5% this year and 4% next year. Amid improving labor market conditions and very strong demand for workers, the economy has been making rapid progress toward maximum employment. Job gains have been solid in recent months, averaging 378,000 per month over the last three months. The unemployment rate has declined substantially, falling six-tenths of a percentage point since our last meeting and reaching 4.2% in November. The last meeting was in September. The recent improvements in labor market conditions have narrowed the differences in employment across groups, especially for workers at the lower end of the wage distribution, as well as for African Americans and Hispanics. Labor force participation showed a welcome rise in November, but remains subdued, in part reflecting the aging of the population and retirements. In addition, some who, who, some who otherwise would be seeking work report that they are out of the labor force because of factors related to the pandemic, including caregiving needs and ongoing concerns about the virus. At the same time, employers are having difficulties filling job openings and wages are rising at their fastest pace in many years. How long the labor shortages will persist is unclear particularly if additional waves of the virus occur. Looking ahead, FOMC participants project the labor market to continue to improve with the median projection for the unemployment rate declining to 3.5% by the end of the year. 
Compared with the projections made in September, participants have revised their unemployment rate projections noticeably lower for this year and next. Supply and demand imbalances related to the pandemic and the reopening of the economy have continued to contribute to elevated levels of inflation. In particular, bottlenecks and supply constraints are limiting how quickly production can respond to higher demand in the near term. These problems have been larger and longer lasting than anticipated, exacerbated by waves of the virus. As a result, overall inflation is running well above our 2% longer run goal and will likely continue to do so well into next year. While the drivers of higher inflation have been predominantly connected to the dislocations caused by the pandemic, price increases have now spread to a broader range of goods and services. Wages have also risen briskly, but thus far wage growth has not been a major contributor to the elevated levels of inflation. We are attentive to the risks that personal persistent. We let me read that again. We are attentive to the risks that persistent real wage growth in excess of productivity could put upward pressure on inflation. It's a bit of a of a confusing sentence there. So we are attentive to the risks that persistent real wage growth in excess of productivity could put upward pressure on inflation. This transcription, I think, just didn't transcribe properly. Essentially what Powell is saying here is that as wage growth continues to increase and accelerate, as long as that is matching productivity, then we then everything in the economy should be working fine and we that's evidence of a good strong economy if the wages continue to increase and productivity is lost that does that will put upward pressure on inflation meaning that companies who have basic who are you know effectively overpaying for their employees have to now make up for it by increasing the prices of their goods and services in order to just pay their their employees let me read on Like most forecasters, we continue to expect inflation to decline to levels closer to our 2% longer run goal by the end of next year. The median inflation projection of FOMC participants falls from 5.3% this year to 2.6% next year. This trajectory is notably higher that this trajectory is notably higher than projected in September. We understand that high inflation imposes significant hardship, especially on those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials like food, housing, and transportation. We are committed to our price stability goal. We will use our tools both to support the economy and a strong labor market and to prevent higher inflation from becoming entrenched. We will be watching carefully to see whether the economy is is evolving in line with expectations. The Fed's monetary policy actions have been guided by our mandate to promote maximum employment and and stable prices for the American people. In support of these goals, the committee reaffirmed the zero to a quarter percentage target range for the federal funds rate. Again, from earlier, the federal funds rate rate right now is 0.15. We also updated our assessment of the progress the economy has made toward the criteria specified in our forward guidance for the federal funds rate. With inflation having exceeded 2% for some time, the committee expects 
that it will be appropriate to maintain this target range until labor market conditions have reached levels consistent with the committee's assessments of maximum employment. All FOMC participants forecast this remaining test will be met next year, and the median projection, sorry, and the median projection for the appropriate level of the federal funds rate is 0.9% at the end of 2022, about half a about half a percentage point higher than projected in September. Okay, so that's the key thing right there. That's it's the one big change that has occurred now at this December FOMC meeting in that the federal funds rate is targeted to get to about 0.9% by the end of 2022. So right now it's at 0.15, it's going to go to 0.9. That's 80 75, yeah, that's 0.75 uh higher. And so therefore we're looking at, you know, potentially three, that's the speculation, three hikes next year to get to 0.9%. Participants expect a gradual pace of policy firming with the level of the federal funds rate generally near estimates of its longer run level by the end of 2024. Of course, these these projections do not represent a committee decision or plan, and no one knows with any certainty where the economy will be a year or more from now. At today's meeting, the committee also decided to double the pace of reductions in its asset purchases. Beginning in mid-January, we will reduce the monthly pace of our net asset purchases by $20 billion for Treasury securities and $10 billion for agency mortgage-backed securities. If the economy evolves broadly as expected, similar reductions in the pace of net asset purchases will likely be appropriate each month, implying that increases in our securities holdings would cease by mid-March, a few months sooner than we anticipated in early November. We are phasing out our purchases more rapidly because with the elevated inflation pressures and a rapidly changing, rapidly strengthening labor market, the economy no longer needs increasing amounts of policy support. In addition, a quicker conclusion of our asset purchases will better, posi- will better position policy to address the full range of plausible economic outcomes. We remain prepared to adjust the pace of purchases if warranted by changes in the economic outlook, and even after our balance sheet stops expanding, our holdings of securities will continue to foster accommodative financial conditions. To conclude, we understand that our actions affect communities, families, and businesses across the country. Everything we do is in service to our public mission. We at the Fed will do everything we can to complete the recovery in employment and achieve our price stability goal. Thank you. And I look forward to your questions. So now we get to the question and answers segment where all you have a bunch of uh, media experts and analysts uh, who are on this uh, call. And I want to highlight a couple things here now for you. I think one of the things that was interesting is that I kind of broke down all the different men and women that were on this call and essentially what were the topics that were asked. Each of them asked a more or less a cause and effect kind of question. And if I had to lump all together the categories or at least identify the categories by which these men and women were asking questions, this is how I would break it down. On the female side, the females asked topics that related to max employment, tapering, 
max, sorry, that was a repeat. So we're looking at max employment, tapering, wages, inflation, and labor force participation. On the men's side, some of the topics that they brought up were tapering, max employment, Omicron, consumer demand, inflation, interest rates, balance sheet, bond market, and macroeconomic trends as a whole. So if you isolate then those topics that were common among both genders, if you remove those out, things like tapering and max employment and inflation, then the two topics that the females more or less focused on were wages and labor force participation. So to start with, I want to let's play let's play a clip from Gianna of the New York Times, Gina, Gianna, Gina, J E A N N A, from the New York Times. She asks a question with regards to wages. Here it is. You noted that the ECI was one of the things that made you nervous, but you also said earlier that you don't see signs that wages are actually factoring into inflation yet. And I guess I wonder how you think about sort of the wage picture as as you're making these assessments. Right. So what I said, you, you quoted me correctly. It's 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 so far we don't see wages are not a big part of the high inflation story that we're seeing. As you look forward, let's assume that the goods economy does sort itself out and, and supply chains get working again and maybe there's a rebalancing back to services and all, all that kinds of thing. Um, but uh, what, what that leaves behind is the other things that can lead to persistent inflation. In particular, we don't see this yet, but which, if you had something where wages were persistently, real wages were persistently above productivity growth, that puts upward pressure on uh, on, on firms and they raise prices, it would, it would take something that was persistent and material for that to happen. And we don't see that yet, but with the kind of hot labor market readings, uh, wages we're seeing, it's something that we're, that we're watching. And the other thing, of course, is, is rents, which are very important, uh, you know, owner's equivalent rent and rent. That's another thing which is very economically sensitive, unlike the, unlike the things that are causing the inflation now. This is economically sensitive. And so would be expected to move up. And so as the as some things go down, the question is, where will we be when we come out the other side of this? And we, we need to keep our eyes on those things. So here, Jerome Powell is talking and addressing inflation. And the primary reason for inflation occurring right now is not due to what classical economists would identify simply as an increase in the money supply. The inflation that is incur that is occurring right now is the fact that there are supply chain disruptions. There are a shortages on products. There's a bottleneck at ports, and there's way too much demand going on. And so, what are businesses doing? And businesses are just increasing their price right now because, effectively, of lost revenue and for the for the fact that businesses can do this right now. So, do wages? have any effect right now on the existing inflation that is incurring. And Powell's point is no, there is no indication of that right now. And as I had mentioned earlier with regards to how Powell views the relationship between 
wage increases and productivity is that if wages are increasing and productivity is increasing, then that is a good sign of a strong, healthy economy. But as wages are increasing and productivity decreases, then effectively that makes this that that gap right there does get passed on to the customer because the employer has to make up for that wage somewhere. Okay, so now we go to Olivia from Bloomberg who inquires about labor force participation. This is actually a really good one. It's a long one. Have a listen. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chair Powell, and thank you for taking our questions. I wanted to follow up on some of your earlier comments about labor force participation, and I wondered what do you think needs to change in the economy to kind of get a meaningful recovery in labor force participation, and also whether running the economy hot, like in the last expansion, is one way of doing that? Well, the labor market is, by so many measures, hotter than it ever ran in the last uh, uh in the last expansion, if you think about it, you know the the ratio of job openings, for example, to uh, to to vacancies is at all time highs. Quits, the, the wages, all those things are are are, are even hotter. Um, but what would it take for labor force participation to move up more? Um, you know, that's a, that really why is it low? Is the question. So there 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 are a bunch of answers, and all of them probably have some. Uh, you know, some validity. Part, part of it will be that people, uh, cert, for certain people, they don't want to go back in the labor force because either they're medically vulnerable or they're not comfortable uh, going back uh, while COVID is still everywhere. That's one thing. The, the, the lack of availability of child care made for caretakers is certainly part of it, not just for children, but for, for older people. Um, it has been pointed out by many that the stock market is high. People's portfolios are stronger. They may they may go back to being a one income rather than a two income family. The same thing with with people's houses. People buy a, a they have a mortgage and the you know with, with leverage, and the house price increases. The equity they have in their home might have doubled, and they might make reach the same conclusion. So there and and people have savings on their balance sheet because of forced savings and that because they couldn't spend on travel and things like that, and also because of um, you know, because of government transfers. So for all of those reasons, and it's hard to know exactly the part each of them plays, we, we, have, a, we have a situation where we've had a shock to labor force participation that is not unwinding as quickly as, as many has expected. And uh, people, in effect, a good part of it is voluntary. It, it, you know, people, and, and this is how they want to maximize their welfare. And that's, that's, that's their certainly their choice. In other cases, it's something that will abate very quickly if, if and when the pandemic gets under control. And the longer the pandemic goes on, you know, maybe the less likely that people will come back because they're, uh, you know, they get used to their new life and they lose contact with their old jobs. That's that's what the evidence would say. So it's a range of things. Um, it, it isn't that the, the economy lacks stimulus. You know, usually in every other uh, expansion, it's that there aren't enough jobs and people can't find jobs. And, you know, we're stimulating demand and trying to get demand to come up. That's not the problem here. The, the problem is, is a supply side problem, which um, what it would take to work it out. I think it's going to be time. And, and number one thing it would, to, would really be to, to have the pandemic get under control. That's what everyone would really like to see. What does the labor force, what does the labor market look like in a world without COVID? That would be the thing that uh, that we'd really like to see. But but uh, you know, it, it doesn't look like that's coming anytime soon. 
And just to quickly follow up on that, if some of the reason that labor force participation isn't back to, you know, February 2020 levels, because people are voluntarily making life decisions that are different, does that make you think we're going to end up at a lower rate overall? Well, there's a demographic trend underlying all of this. And we actually got above the demographic trend at the end of the last expansion. Um, but uh, so one would expect over time that labor force participation would would move down because an aging population, the older people are, the, the lower their participation rate is. So you would expect that uh, that that the trend would be lower and that over time uh, participation would move down. The question of how much we can get back up closer to where we were in February of 2020 and indeed for the for the year or so before that is a good one. And I mean, I what we can do is try to create the conditions. There's a, there's a lot of good for society when you have a, a, a tight but stable labor market where people are coming in, they're getting in the labor force, they're they're getting paid well. In a, in, a, in the labor market we had before, we had uh, you know the, the 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 biggest wage increases were going to people at the bottom end of the wage spectrum for the last couple of years. There were just a lot of really desirable aspects of a labor market like that. Higher participation is one of them, and we'd love to get back there. But but again, ultimately, we have the tools that we have, which are essentially to stimulate demand and also to control inflation. I mean, really, it might be. One of the two big threats to getting back to maximum employment is actually high inflation, because to get back to where we were, the evidence grows that it's going to take some time. And, and what we need is another long expansion like the ones we've been having over the last 40 years. We've had, I think, three of the four longest in our in our recorded history, including the last one, which was the longest in our recorded history. That's what it would really take to get back to the kind of labor market we'd like to see. And to have that happen, we need to make sure that we maintain price stability. Okay, there's a lot to unpack on there, but let's first start off with what is the labor force participation rate? And I'm reading from investopedia.com. The labor force participation rate is an estimate of an economy's active workforce. The formula is the number of people ages 16 and over who are employed or actively seeking employment, divided by the total non-institutionalized civilian working age population. Okay, so this is basically who are all the total amount of capable workers, if they are working or not working, and, and if they're not working, they're, they're looking for work, divided by the total population of the, of the, of the civilization, of, of the society, of the country, that is able to work that are effectively not in prison. Okay. And so what, what is this rate? So if we look at history and this is according to the St. Louis fed, if we look at a 19, if we look at a period from 1948 to 2019, the labor force participation rate started out in 1948, somewhere around 50, a little above 58%, but below 59%. And that kind of traded sideways, or that, that was going up and down fairly sideways up until about 1970. From 1970 till 2000, that's where it increased the labor force participation rate, which you want a higher number. The labor force participation rate went from in that 58 percentile 
to roughly 67%, so nine percentage points. Now you have to ask yourself, is that a big jump or not? I don't know. I think when I see this and I look at this, this just gives context. So from 1970 to 2000, the labor force participation rate increased by nine percentage points. And from 2000 to now, the labor force participation rate has decreased from, again, its highs right in that 60, high 67% range to what it is now at 61%. So that you've lost uh, seven percentage points, essentially. And so today's labor participation rate is 61%. Now, why does this matter? This matters because to Olivia's point in her question and to how Powell was answering that question, there's this demographical interest of, is there an older population that is still actively seeking work or will they come back to work? Why may they not come back to work right now or even ever? As Powell explained, it could be to the fact that Households have done a better job of saving during the pandemic. Households may have also done well in the stock market. Households may be comfortable with only one income. So there are these factors that are leading the labor participation rate to be at its current levels of about 61% and not anything higher. But again, just because it's higher, even though I said earlier that you want higher, but you know, again, what's unknown is that if it is higher, generally what that meant before was that you had an aging, your your I shouldn't say aging, you had an older population that was involved in the workforce. That is left to be seen if that older population is still looking to get back into the workforce. Okay, let's move on to the next Q&A. Now, this is from the men. So this is Howard from Reuters who asks a question with regards to the Omicron variant. And I think this is one of those questions that's a bit economic and also a bit political. Uh, this is another long one. Have a listen. So I guess I got to ask about the elephant in the room, which is the uh, Omicron variant. Uh, you know, this seems to already be pushing one of your colleagues, the, the, the Bank of England, off its course. Things have evolved very fast there. Uh, hasn't quite hit the shores of the U.S. in full force yet that people seem to expect it to. So I'm, I'm wondering, in, in, in your um, feelings about this, are you convinced that this is going to be perhaps a more infectious but less serious variant of the virus, or are you simply confident that the U.S. economy can continue its divorce from the pandemic? Well, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, which is why we, why we called it out in our statement, our post-meeting statement, as a risk. Uh, it's we we follow the same experts and I, we we talk privately to the same experts that everyone else does and read the same articles in the paper and the same research and you know so the early you you mentioned the early assessment is highly transmissible perhaps not as severe some continuing protection from uh, from existing vaccines and also existing immunity from having had the disease that's a first draft uh, we're a long way from knowing what it will turn out to be. Um, it may well come to the United States and replace Delta as the dominant variant fairly quickly. That, that, that could easily happen. Um, I, I think there's another step there, though, which is what's going to be the effect on the economy. And that, that will depend, uh, you know, on 
how much it suppresses demand as opposed to some suppressing supply. It is not clear how big the effects would be on either inflation or growth or hiring um, can, on top of what, what, what's already going on, which is quite a strong uh, uh, you know, wave of Delta that's hitting large parts of the country across the northern United States and all the way to the eastern seaboard and now coming down. We're having a, quite a wave of, of Delta. So coming in on top of that, again, it's very difficult to say what the economic effects would be. I do think wave upon wave, people are learning to live with this. More and more people are getting vaccinated. So people who get uh, the new variant, it affects them much less than, than, it, than it tends to affect in the aggregate people who are not vaccinated. So the more people get vaccinated, the less the economic effect. It doesn't mean it won't have a, an economic effect. Delta had an effect of slowing down hiring, hiring and it actually uh, it, it had an effect on global supply chains. And that that sort of uh, that hurt the process of the global supply chains getting worked out. So it can have an economic effect. I, I just think at this point we don't know much. We'll know a whole lot more in three weeks, and we'll know more than that in six weeks. But, but, but if I could follow up, you're, you're clearly from a sort of from a risk standpoint, comfortable putting away one of your tools pretty soon, which sort of implies that whatever Omicron brings, you're comfortable the economy can handle it without quantitative easing. Yes, yes. I look. I th I think if you look at the state of the economy, and and the amount, the strength of demand the strength of just overall demand, the strength of demand for labor, um, look at inflation, look at look at wages. I, I think moving, you know, moving forward the end of our taper by uh, a few months is, is really is really an appropriate thing to do. And I think really Omicron doesn't doesn't really uh, have much to do with that. So this one is a bit more self-explanatory, especially the follow up question. Because the follow-up question really highlights the fact that Jerome Powell, along with the other board of governors on the Federal Reserve, think that the economy is strong enough to be able to take away one of the Fed's strongest tools. They really have two tools, that being buying treasury uh, or agency mortgage-backed securities and buying treasury bonds. That's one tool they have. The second tool they have is controlling the interest rate. So that is what they're working on next. But at least that first part, the Fed is going to be terminating that their asset purchases in March, effectively. That's what has been, that's per Powell, that's what he's speculating, that the asset purchases will be completed by March. And hence, any effects of Omicron may be effectively nil because the Fed thinks that the economy is going fairly strong itself. Okay. Let's get to the other another question by one of the other men, and this is with regards to the macroeconomic issues and what Powell sees going on here. This is actually a really good question and provides a framework for how Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve think about how they gauge the health of the economy based on this four-factor test. Have a listen. This is Michael from Dow Jones. So um, as the Fed uh, shifts towards an accelerated taper, I wonder what your read is on financial stability risks right now. I mean, these, these periods can be, you know, uh, it seems like the taper process has gone fairly smooth so far. But, you know, wh what do you see in terms of stability risks? Are there any parts of the financial sector that concern you right now? And uh, are there any significant systemic issues that uh, are on your radar, you know, maybe from the cryptocurrency sector or something like that? You know, we have we have uh, had now for uh, 
a decade and more four-part financial stability framework that we use so we can we can hold ourselves to the same kind of uh, framework and, and uh, you know, not just treat each each event individually. And, and there, there are four key areas, asset valuations, debt owed by households and businesses, funding risk, and leverage among financial institutions. So I would say asset valuations, I'm going to go really superficially here, but asset valuations are, are somewhat elevated, I would say. Debt owed by businesses, you know, and, and households. Households are in very strong financial shape. Businesses actually have a lot of debt, but their default rates are, are very, very low. Uh, but nonetheless, it's something we're watching. Funding risk is, uh, it by and large, low uh, among, uh, among financial institutions, but, uh, but we do see uh, money market funds as a vulnerability and, and uh, uh, you know, would applaud uh, the, the SEC's action uh, this week. Leverage among financial institutions is low in the sense that capital is high. So overall, uh, you know, financial stability, uh, th that's how I would, I, I would make an overall characteristic, but we break it down into those pieces. In terms of the things, you know, that we're, that we're looking for, looking at, um, you know, the, it, it's, it's the things we've already talked about to some extent. It's, it's the emergence of a new variant that could, uh, you know, that could lead to significant uh, economic, if it were, if there were to be a variant, for example, that were quite resistant to vaccines, it could have another significant effect on the economy. We don't see that. We don't have any basis for thinking that the new variant that we have is that one, but it's certainly one we're, we're looking at. Um, I, I would say, you know, cyber risk, the risk of a successful cyber attack is for me, uh, you know, always the most, uh, you know, one that we uh, we would be very difficult to deal with. I think we know uh, how to deal with bad loans and things like that. I think more a cyber attack that were to take down a major financial institution or financial market utility would be a, a really significant financial stability risk that we haven't actually faced yet. So um, I could go on with a list of horribles, but I think that's a, that's a, that's a decent picture of where I would start. So what we're looking at here, what Jerome Powell is looking at here in terms of financial stability, regardless of the event that is taking place, if it's a pandemic or a cyber attack, what does financial stability look like? He uses, or not only he, but the rest of the governor's board of governors uses, they use a four-factor test, one looking at asset valuations, the second debt owed by households and businesses, the third is the funding risk. And the fourth is the leverage amongst financial institutions to which he outlined in those four areas that for the most part right now, there's nothing to be alarmed about. Asset value, valuations like either companies or houses are up. Is, you know, that's a good thing. It may be a bad thing, but at least it's not gonna be a bad thing right now. The funding risk, you know, the, the liability of someone or a company having some investments and what they're able to do with it or, or extend some investments to a person or to a company that's fairly low right now. The leverage amongst financial institutions. Well, company, I'm sorry, let's go back to the debt owed by households and businesses. He had mentioned that businesses do have high debt right now. And that is one of the reasons why you're going to start to see that interest rate hike up because all these businesses will effectively be paying more for the cost of borrowing money. Right, which that is definitely going to play out with regards to how companies, how big companies, how the economy as a whole will start to slow down and shrink a little bit because 
now the cost of everything is going up. And then when it comes to leverage amongst financial institutions, there's not a whole lot of, of worries with regards to, you know, does government, do the people, do they have all this power over these financial institutions that could break? You know, think of 2008 and the financial crisis. There was, you know, there was much more leverage that the people had over the banking system, which is why the banking system crashed. One of the reasons, right? Or that was a byproduct of of the financial uh, crash was that there was too much leverage against the financial institutions. Okay, so that concludes the Q&A. Now let's talk about what these Fed hikes, these Fed rate hikes mean, sorry, what they don't mean for 2022. What do these Fed rate hikes, the per, the three proposed rate hikes to go from 0.15 to 0.9, what does that not mean? First thing, it does not mean that there is this is going to solve any challenges in the supply chain. Going back to that four-factor test and Powell mentioning how there are lots of businesses that are carrying a lot of debt, just because interest rates are rising, that is not going to expedite more ships coming over from wherever they're coming from. It's not going to expedite the distribution from the ports to their necessary distribution centers that will, and you know, then you still have the semiconductor problem and and mining for metals. So that stuff is not going to have any effect whatsoever uh, on the, on the hikes of the, of the interest rate. Another thing that will not mean anything for the fed rate hikes, price increases, you're not going to see price either decreasing, that is. You're not going to see prices coming down, at least for the next year, as a result of the interest rate going up. Why is that? Let me just simply put the fact that, that to, in order to stabilize prices so that prices can come down a bit from their inflated um, stand right now, you, you effectively need more supply, right? That's the only way you have, you have such a high demand right now of goods and services that the only way to start bringing down the price is you need more supply. So that's the, the fed rate hikes will have nothing to do with prices coming down. And the last thing, the labor participation rate, that labor participation rate is not going to be affected by these fed rate hikes, at least in 2022. Okay, we're still trying to figure out in this labor participation rate, who are the people that are still coming into the workforce? Who has permanently left it because of X reason? Now, what should you do? What should you do effectively to protect against these rate hikes in 2022? The first and easiest thing you want to practice is simply save. Why do you want to save? The cost of borrowing is going up. The cost of borrowing, if it's because of business, is if, if their rate is going up, then that will be passed down to you. The cost of the goods and services will be higher for you. If you currently have outstanding debt right now, you want to start to look to pay that off. Because especially with credit card companies, they can change that rate at any given time. 
provided they give you notice. But I read somewhere that currently the average interest rate APR for a credit card is right at about 18%, and that will go up to about 22, that will go up to about 22, 23%. Auto loans, on the other hand, if you currently have an auto loan, that is not going to, the interest rate will not increase on that. That will stay steady uh, for whatever term you signed up for. However, in, in the future, if you are looking to take out a loan, yes, the interest rate might go from what it is now. If, if a bank is offering 0.9%, it goes to 1.5%. Not a huge jump, but again, from a macro perspective, all of that translates to billions of dollars that will be effectively transacted in the space as a result of that 0.6% or you know, 0.9% increase in the, in the interest rate. So again, what should you do? First thing is you should save. Second thing is you should look to pay off any debt as fast as possible. And the last thing, the last thing, hedging. Where should you hedge? I think you are best suited to hedge on those things that have market fit and have a strong business operation. There are many pandemic stocks, for instance, like Zoom, like Peloton, like you could say the AMCs and the GMEs, right? The GameStops of the world that while they were, while they were already in existence before the pandemic, certainly they came to fame, they came to notoriety during the pandemic. But then you have to ask yourself, is there a market fit for these types of companies? These, type, these types of investments? Do they have a strong business operation? If they do, then regardless of where you are at right now, if, if maybe you're taking a loss in the stock market right now in these companies, hold on for dear life. This will prove out to be very beneficial to you. For those companies that do not have market fit, if they do not have a strong business operation, Abandon ship. Just do it. Cut your losses. Don't think twice about it. Just cut your losses. Move on. Look to move your money where you can find companies, businesses, operations, assets that have market fit and there is a strong business model behind it, a strong business operation. I hope this was helpful to you. This was episode 199. We have one more episode to go before the end of the year, and I'm looking forward to having that episode. You'll get to see why. Thanks for tuning in to Wisco Weekly. As always, cheers, pros, chaim, kips, nastravi, salut, kampai, mabruk, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastrovie, vos, salute, and saudi to the customer experience. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is part of the podcast channel, Not Your Father's Economy, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Economy, where you can receive bonus episodes, ad-free episodes that are intended to give you actionable insight to help you professionally and personally. Become a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Podcast for just $8.49 a month or $94 for the year, and you can cancel anytime. Also, please consider giving Wisco Weekly a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in.
Wisco Weekly is providing this information for educational purposes only. We are not providing legal, accounting, or financial advisory services, and this is not a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, options, or other financial instruments or investments. Examples that address specific assets, stocks, options or other financial instrument transactions are for illustrative purposes only and may not represent specific trades or transactions that we have conducted. In fact, we may use examples that are different or the opposite of transactions we have conducted or positions we hold. This site and any information or training therein is also not intended as a solicitation for any future relationship, business or otherwise between the members or participants and the moderators. No express or implied warranties are being made with respect to these services and products. All investing and trading in the securities market involves risk. Any decisions to place trades in the financial markets, including trading in stock or options or other financial instruments, is a personal decision that should only be made after thorough research, including a personal risk and financial assessment, and the engagement of professional assistance to the extent you believe necessary.